Hello, and welcome to season two of Foster Features Podcast. This season, I plan to bring you even more voices to represent a variety of perspectives to improve our awareness and to provide opportunities for growth and action in the foster care and child welfare space. Our very first episode of season two is a candid conversation with my best friend and badass immigration and family court attorney, Sophia D. In honor of Foster Care and Mental Health Awareness Month, you'll hear us discuss the intersectionality of foster care, immigration, migrant children, and mental health. As always, thanks for listening. Welcome back to Foster Features Podcast. I am your host, Pauline Goldsmith-Johnson. Today, I'll be speaking with New York immigration attorney, Sophia D. Sophia is a very good friend of mine, well, practically family, and she has over 12 years experience as an immigration and family court attorney in New York. Today, we'll be talking about the intersectionality of foster care and mental health awareness, as May is both Foster Care and Mental Health Awareness Month. Sophia will speak to some of the impacts of family separation at the border and the population of migrant children in foster care and kinship care. Additionally, we'll talk about trauma, including vicarious trauma, which many professionals working in this space grapple with as they fight to advocate for and with this vulnerable population. Hello, Sophia. I'm so excited you're here. I think this may be a dream come true for me. I've always wanted us to do an episode together. How are you today? I'm very excited to be here, (laughs) Pauline. Good. So not many know this, but Sophia and I actually worked together when I volunteered at her law firm a few years ago. Can you tell my listeners what kind of work I did for you and how I did? And please be kind. I'll try. Um, (laughs) So basically, a large part of my practice involves something called special immigrant juvenile status, which is... um, a form of relief that starts at the family court. So on the family court level, the child has to be unaccompanied by both of their parents. So they can be living with one parent or they can be living with an aunt or uncle, a bigger you know, brother or sister, or they can be in foster care or they can be something um, known as PINs, a person in need of services. Hmm. So um, any of those children would, would be able to go to family court and get an order uh, of some sort of permanent option, a guardianship, a custody, or, um, you know, a different form of kinship care. And then with that order from the family court, you can file for a, a special immigrant juvenile status visa from USCIS, which is the bureaucratic arm of immigration. Mm-hmm. And once that gets approved, then you can file for lawful permanent residency, which is also known colloquially as a green card. Okay. So, um, in part of that process with the family court, we have to file briefs explaining how this child was abused, abandoned, or neglected by their parent and why they're in need of, of um, these orders. And Pauline was super helpful in helping draft those briefs because she looked at it through the eyes of a social worker and it really elevated um, the, the arguments because she would speak to how... Um, this child not having stability in his or her life would affect their mental health, their physical health, um, things like that. I mean, you can speak a little bit more on it too, but that's really what you did. You helped me with the family court portion of it. Yeah, it was, I, I was, I think, surprised when we talked about my coming in to help you when you wanted a little bit of like my perspective on things. I didn't realize that that was such a huge element of the work that you did. And I thought like, oh my gosh, we're both social workers in a way. Because <laughs> totally. you have to be able to tell these stories. Well, and and you are mainly, you're bilingual, you speak Spanish as well. And many of, most of your clients are native Spanish speakers, right? Yeah, I would say the majority of my clients come from an area known as the Northern Triangle in Central America, which is made up of three countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Right. Yeah, so you would send me these affidavits that you had translated from 
Spanish into English, and then I would help you kind of navigate a or sort of explore a narrative that would bring us to an understanding of what they had endured. And, you know, as you mentioned before, you know, it's not everything is directly translatable, but also some of the content that was shared with you was deeply personal and um, and traumatic. So I imagine that that is not an easy thing to first receive, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one meeting and then have to translate from Spanish into English. And then it comes to me and I work with it to ensure that um, everything aligns and that through the social work lens, that the level of trauma and impact is presented properly. I mean, yes, yes, and yes, and yes. Like it, it is such a joy to help these kids that have had such traumatizing experiences in their very early years find some stability and permanency, but it does take a toll. Yeah. I mean, speaking totally candidly, I entered into therapy myself because it just was a lot. It was a lot to do this day in and day out and hear these horror stories about, you know, poverty, sexual assault, incest, you know, crazy, crazy things that these kids endured, and then you have to turn around and do it again, and you do it five times a day, or, you know, whatever it is, right. and you're making these arguments in court, and it takes a toll, you know, on your mental health, which is why I'm glad we're talking about this during the month of May, because it's, it's something that you don't realize until it kind of piles on enough, and then you then you see the effect. You can't leave this type of work at work, if you get what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember there was one specific case where you and I sort of fell in love <laughs> with this particular client. And I remember you sending me the court date so that I could come and A, see you argue in court for the first time, which I've never seen you do. Um, which was exciting. We've known each other over a decade, and I've always wanted to kind of see you in action, especially after working with you. Um, but I, I think I had a class or something. I was in graduate school, and I was unable to attend, and I was devastated. And I remember sitting by my phone waiting for you to tell me, like, did you win? Did you win his case? And you said, I won his case. And I thought, oh, God, like, it was all worth it. Like, all the tears that we shed and the nights of drinking wine, talking about it, like, it doesn't leave you. These are people, right? These are human stories that it's nearly impossible to walk away from and not be touched and not be moved in some way. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more. I mean, for me, it's it's a double-edged sword almost because it's the reason you do it, right? Yeah. You do it for the wins, but it does it does take its toll on you, especially if you get an unfriendly judge or someone who wants you to, you know, explain why this child can't go back to, to Guatemala, for example. And you're like, did you just hear everything I said? Right. <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean? So when you really have to argue these cases, it's, you're kind of re-traumatizing the child, too, because they have to testify. You have to elicit testimony that you know is painful from, the, from them, you know? Right. And every time they testify, you're just kind of reliving it. Right. Um, both of you, you know? And, and then a lot of times, you know, the child will be there, and then maybe a family member who's just recently kind of gotten to know this person because this, this child arrived here unaccompanied, and now all of a sudden, the only person they know is an aunt or uncle in New York, but they really have no relationship with that person. Maybe that person's been living in the States since before the child was born. Mm. And so then there's a lot of transitional issues, too, that come with, okay, great, you won, and now this person has custody of this child, but now they have to get to know each other. Mm. And that comes with a whole bunch of other, other drama that has nothing to do with my work, per se, but I find myself a lot of time acting as a social worker and a lawyer, you know, because you're just trying to help everyone advance, you know, everyone be the best versions of themselves. And sometimes it takes a little extra TLC to do that. Mm, yeah. It's sort of like being a therapist, an advocate, a mediator, like all at once. Oh yeah. I'm also a travel agent. Like sometimes they'll be like, can you help me book this? I don't have a computer. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm doing this too now. You know? Right. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, this is yeah. the similarity uh, that we see with children in care and specifically um, 
those who age out of care is this lack of access. So there's no guarantee you're, you're going to have a cell phone or, you know, uh, have access, regular access to internet or even know how to use a computer or know how to use software, know how to use the internet properly. So it's like, you're just sort of this, you're just in a tremendous amount of need. You're in this extremely vulnerable position and you want to help yourself, but you haven't been given any of the tools to do it. Well, I found that actually became a humongous problem during the remote learning and virtual learning for my clients because a lot of them don't have computers. They don't have Wi-Fi. So if there is no school in session, they're not going. They're not learning. Mm. You know, so that's another thing. Like if you're not, I mean, in foster care, maybe there's programs that can that can help get you there. But if you're in kinship care, there's not the same level of services. Right. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. And I think there are some um, there are some advocates out there working on changing that. I don't know that it will be successful, but it seems um, sort of unfair that 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 those um, that to that the priority should be to keep children with their families. And why shouldn't they receive the same assistance as as a foreign family, you know, outside of their biological family unit? they get, you know, they get financial assistance and support. So it seems kind of silly to not consider that if this is in the best interest of the child, why not do everything you can to ensure that that's the outcome? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, how do you do it? Like, how do you manage your work-life balance? I mean, this is hard work. I mean, I have a full-time job in cybersecurity and all of the advocacy, foster care, reform work that I do is in my private life. And so I kind of get to determine how much or how little I engage in it, which helps me manage and balance my mental health. How do you do it when it's your, you know, it's, it's your profession? I mean, it's hard. It depends. Maybe you want to ask my husband. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll um, give him a call. <laughs> I'll interview yeah. him next. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, on some days it's like a great day, you know, and I, it just, it really does impact my mood, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that a large part of what I do are, are these um, special immigrant juvenile cases that are, mm -hmm. we call SIDGE, um, you know, in it for short. But another big part of what I do is asylum law. And, um, so those cases mostly that I, that I focus on are domestic violence cases. Mm. And because of the Trump administration and the changes to the, the asylum law during his, um, administration, it's almost impossible to win these cases now. So you put all this hard work in, you make this woman, you know, testify for hours about all the abuse that she, that she suffered at the hands of her partner just to get it denied, you know, mm. and you just come home and it just really, it's hard to just not, you know, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it, it's a, it's a very lonely place to be in. Yeah. It's like a and losing of faith. It's hard for everybody to understand. That's not, that doesn't do the same line of work. Like it's hard to share this kind of, it, it's your own pain. It's your own trauma because you couldn't help somebody that really deserves the help. Yeah. So it gets, you know, you can get, you can easily get depressed with it. Um, and, you know, sometimes too, you know, I'll get on these, like, uh, these kicks where I'm very, you know, very feminist, you know, and then my husband will be like, oh, did you, you know, did you make dinner? And I'm like, why do I have to make dinner? You make dinner. You know, this is it's this kind of thing. It's like, has nothing to do with him. That's like my work coming home with me. You right. Know? Yeah. Well, and it's a system of kind of extreme highs and extreme lows in your work where, yes. Yeah, you lose a case and it just can put you down forever. And then you win a case and like you're way up high. And, you know, the, the, who knows, you know, the next court date around the corner could bring you right back down. And yeah, that's hard to manage, I can imagine. Totally. And it's, it's something that also um, you just have to be conscious of. You just really have to be able to take inventory and, and ask for help. And sometimes it's hard to do that, but it's you have to ask, can I just, you know, can I take Saturday to myself? Like self-care I've learned, especially in this pandemic, is something that I realized I never really took advantage of. Mm. You know, having the courts closed, I worked so much less. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm getting eight hours of sleep a night. That's really changing my life, mm. you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And we got to spend some more time together too, which was really nice. Cause I think we both suffered a little bit from isolation because you live in, you mainly live in, you know, you live in two places, but you know, you had to oscillate between, you know, the upper East side of Manhattan and Westchester, um, which is, um, I guess considered downstate. Is it considered downstate New York? I guess is the technical term. Um, if you ask anybody from Westchester, it's downstate. Don't say upstate. Okay, I won't say upstate. <laughs> Don't want to anger anybody. <laughs> if there's any New Yorkers listening. <laughs> and then I was in North Brooklyn, and you know, the first few months of the pandemic, we didn't see each other at all because of quarantine. And um, it was just very, it was a really weird time. And so many of, I know your friends left, you know, like went to, you know, moved away to faraway places. And certainly a lot of my friends, my city dweller friends who had children and some who didn't decided to move because they were just so fearful of being in a highly populated area during the pandemic. So it became a very, like all of a sudden my entire like, you know, friend family left, you know, like, of course we are still in touch, but it's not the same. We can't go grab brunch, grab a coffee, go for a walk. Um, all of those things are now so far reaching and, you know, but you and I had each other, thankfully. <laughs> I mean, it was like, I think it was six months we went without seeing each other. And that's the longest we've ever gone in our entire friendship. So that was, that, that hurt a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I think too, I mean, it's worth mentioning that we're not alone in that, right? Right. Again, being, you know, Mental Health Awareness Month, there is so much, you know, um, depression, anxiety, drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence, so many things. We saw this pattern of when you when you lock people up in these quarantines, mm -hmm. these shelters and places, you know, it, it takes a toll on everyone's mental health. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's not okay. I understand the, the health aspect and I understand it was all necessary, but at the same time, it's especially people who are living alone, you know, mm. how do they deal without any, any social contact? Yeah. No, it definitely had some far reaching impact and, and there'll be longstanding consequences, um, of this, of this time that we've lived through for sure. I mean, even now people that have been vaccinated in my life have struggled with making plans to see each other, even though we're all vaccinated. And it's like, but we're good now. We're okay. Like it's not dangerous. Um, and still struggling to kind of come to this place of like, oh, right. It's okay. It's okay to open the curtains, open the windows, open the doors. It's okay to step outside, you know, cause we've just been conditioned and, and in a state of fear, you know, that this is what protects us. So even now that those of us who are protected, we're still struggling with the psychology of what we've just endured for the last year and a half. For sure. I mean, I think also I remember listening to one of your earlier podcasts um, where you spoke about when the school shut down, when colleges shut down, mm -hmm. um, a lot of kids that were had aged out of foster care, like that's where they lived. Right. There was no place for them to go to Thanksgiving or for them to go or to live permanently while, while school was virtual. So, you know, those those kids must have had such heightened levels of anxiety. Like, where am I going to get food from? Where am I going to sleep? Right. How am I going to stay safe? Right. Right. Absolutely. And that is a, that's an issue that foster youth who have aged out contend with even not during a pandemic, you know, when school shuts down for Thanksgiving, winter break, summer break, you know, those are still very real questions that they have to arrive at some sort of solutions for themselves. And it's unfair. And, um, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a longstanding issue that continues. So go, going from there, I know that you had actually a couple of questions for me just around, um, the sort of basic statistics around foster care that you wanted me to answer. What are those questions? The first one, I thought that was really important for me to know, was how many children are actually in care currently? Mm. Well, there are about, well, there are more than, I don't know exactly beyond the number, um, but there are more than 400,000 children in care at any given time. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it takes your breath away, right? <laughs> 
And well, do you, I, did, I saw a statistic where they, they were talking about how many immigrant children are in foster care. And I yeah. was by that number. Yeah. So what, so what is that number? And are they referred to, do you, I mean, I've sort of seen like these terms used interchangeably. So I want to make sure I get it right. But do you know if the proper term is migrant children or unaccompanied children? I guess for legal purposes, it's probably unaccompanied children, right? Yeah. Unaccompanied alien children is the term, okay. UACs, they're called. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not sure how that's going to go in the Biden administration because I did hear whispers that they were trying to change the verbiage okay. so that immigrants and undocumented people would be called exactly that as opposed to aliens because Correct. I don't think anybody thinks they come from Mars. Correct. So <laughs> I'm not sure why we're still doing that. But, um, the number that I saw was that as of March of this year, 2021, there were 10,418 immigrant, immigrant children in foster care. And I that took my breath away. Mm. Now you're telling me in total, there's over 400,000. Right. So that means also that if these are children that cross the border, the southern border, I can't imagine that there's over 10,000 children, like just in the surrounding areas in care, they probably had to get moved throughout other states, which is probably like even more traumatizing. The, the further a child moves from the last place that they saw their parent or parents has got to be just crushing and devastating. Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, the big issue with the southern border, I think for me is that you're separating children that are nonverbal, right? Not mm-hmm. all of them, but sometimes you know the kid is under two, right? And then when you try and reunite them with mom and dad, and you ask the child what's mom's name, what are they going to say? Mommy. Mm-hmm. How does that help you? You right. know what I mean? So I think that those kids, I and mean, there are still 545 children as of October 2020 that haven't been reunited yet. So, you know, and, and the Trump administration was deporting the parents, but they couldn't deport the children. I mean, there was like a loophole for that in the law. But now what? Right. Now, they, now they're now they in these detention centers or these, you know, shelters for children or youth homes, you know, and they're getting further and further, like you said, away from the last place they saw their parent. And it's going to be harder and harder to reunify them. Right. Because mom and dad are not going to know where to look. Right. Well, and they don't even know where they are. I mean, they're you're looking at a completely different geography. You know, they they, they crossed multiple countries to get to the border, and now they're you know they're crossing this you know this this continent, not knowing like they don't necessarily know what the difference between Minnesota and Michigan or Texas or Tennessee or. You know, and and like you said, where, where it's children that are nonverbal, if that paperwork wasn't filled in correctly to ensure that they knew who the parents were, who what the who the child is, and ensure that they kept track of both, you know, the parents and the child, I don't even know where you begin to reunite that child with that family. I I don't even know where one would begin to do that. And that's why they're still there, right? I mean, yeah. it doesn't work. You can't do it. And that's just talking about the southern border. During this, during the Trump administration, from April to June of 2018, there was a zero-tolerance policy. If they found you, for whatever reason, undocumented in here, you were being deported. It didn't matter if you had a criminal record. It didn't matter if they were in your home looking for somebody else who they had a warrant for, if it became clear that you didn't have papers, you were getting deported too. Mm. So, so that now it has nothing to do with the border, right? You could have crossed 13 years ago and just never was eligible for something, you know, to, or you've been saving up to pay an attorney, you know, to do your paperwork for you. Right. And that's, and that's, you know, a financial issue for people as well. Right. You know, getting here is expensive. And then, you know, they you have to pay back the person who helped you guide you here. You know, so their priority is working a lot of times. And unfortunately, a lot of immigration applications are time sensitive. So, for example, if you don't file for asylum within your first year, year you're no longer eligible for it. So, but, you know, but my point is that those people were taken too. So there are American citizen children 
who are here whose parents were just taken away. Mm. Now, those kids are in foster. I mean, they're Americans, the, the staff that's more on your end of it. Right, yeah. But it wasn't, nobody abused, neglected, abandoned any of those children. There was no family court case saying the best interest of this child is to be removed from the home. No, that's not what happened. He was at work in a factory and there was a raid and he got sent home. And then no one goes to pick that kid up at school. Mm. I mean, I can't even begin to fathom what that's like. You leave for school and then you never, you come home and you never see one of your parents ever again. Well, and then you're put with a family that you don't recognize who maybe doesn't speak your language, understand your culture. Uh, Yeah, it's devastating. Well, it's another big issue too. You know, and maybe those kids came here when they were very, very young, let's say, and they didn't um, get caught at the border. So they were able to come in and they've just been living undocumented from then. But they technically don't have an immigration status. So, you know, that can also affect the foster care system and their ability to get a, a permanent option, permanent, you know, placement, because they don't even have status. Mm. Or maybe they have cultural issues or they have, you know, language issues. Like there are some, you know, there's a small portion of the cases that I do from Guatemala where they're indigenous and they speak, you know, a lot of people speak um, quiche. There's no, there's nobody speaks that here. It's not like Spanish where you can find somebody who took it in high school. No one took quiche in high school. Wow. Well, how do you place these kids? Yeah. That's so interesting. I don't think you've ever told me that before. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You know, they're of Mayan descent, you know, but they have their own cultures. They have their own language. And if one of those kids is at the border right now, it's going to be very difficult to find a translator to at least figure out who's mom. Mm. What town were you from? Because no one speaks that language. Oh, terrifying. Super challenging. I mean, I understand, you know, the immigration system is broken for a lot of reasons, and I'll be the first one to say that. So, you know, but, but the zero tolerance, the family separation, that was not the solution. That helps no one, in my opinion. I agree. Especially from a child's point of view, if we're going to leave, just leave it at that, you know? Mm. Well, and I think what our society fails to understand sometimes is that, you know, children grow up into adults. So if they're experiencing trauma as children, you know, so developmental trauma, that's going to carry into their adulthood, which is going to impact what kind of member of society they become. So it behooves everyone to keep our children safe, to ensure that they have every need, every at least basic needs met, and ensure that they have the mental health support and resources that they need so that as they grow up and become contributing members of society, that we have a more robust society as a result of that. That there is no such thing as like leaving a child behind. You don't leave a child. They don't, the child doesn't disappear. They grow up (laughs) and they join society, you know, and I think it behooves all of us to like want to be, or at least have the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves, which I know is very idealistic, but you know, that's, (laughs) it's very reflective of me. (laughs) Unheard of. Interesting, right? So you talked about these four hundred thousand kids that are in foster foster care, right? Yeah. How many of those kids age out every year? Oh, it's it's also disheartening. So about twenty thousand youth between the ages of eighteen and twenty one age out of foster care every year. Okay. So what happens to them is that they go into the world with. You know, like one day they're in foster care, the next day they're not. And what that means is that the government is no longer responsible for providing them with anything. So there are some resources that they might be eligible for, um, but not every kid ages out the same way. Like some kids run away at 17 or one week before they turn 18 um, or they decided, you know, to stay because there are in some states the ability to stay till you're 21. There's criteria you have to meet to be able to stay in until you're 21. I think it requires, depends on the state, that you have to be enrolled in some sort of program or or college or university. 
Um, so if that's not the case for you and you either aged out or, or, or ran away during that time period, you might struggle with something that I think your population probably faces as well, which is obtaining the necessary paperwork to meet the requirements for things like employment, education, housing, financial assistance, like things like that you need to like get a driver's license to get a state ID. Um, you know, all these things that are required, basic things that are required for minimally employment, certainly for housing and definitely for financial assistance. So, um, what have you had to contend with when assisting your clients with like those types of issues? Cause I can speak to the foster care population, but I'm interested in, uh, cause I know that that's gotta be like the number one issue when you see a client is like, what do you have? Like what documents do you have that can help me get you where you need to be? Well, so this is the issue with the stitch kits is that, um, you can't apply. So, Let's say, again, we're talking about children from the Northern Triangle. So first you have to do the family court process. That can take anywhere from six months to a year, depending on where it be, the visa. And then that can take, you know, six months to a year to be approved. So now you're at like two years, let's say, worst case scenario. Now, if you're from Honduras, Guatemala, or El Salvador, there's a three-year wait before you can even apply for your green card. So that's five years of you before you're eligible for a work permit, a social security number, driver's license, any of those things. That's five years. Mm. So that's the first problem there. Like even if you're doing everything correctly, you're not even eligible for that. And like how do you survive in the interim, which is nuts. Yeah, and a lot of these kids, you know, hey, if you're two, it's fine. But if you're 15, when we start your case, you're going to graduate high school and you're going to want to work or you're going to want to apply to college or you're going to want to do something and without a social, you know, you really can't do much. You know, you certainly can't work legally. You can't go to college. So, so that's really difficult. The newer problem that I've been having in the last 16, 15, 16 months is because of COVID, these kids have not been able to get passports. They haven't been able to get birth certificates. So when you do finally get the chance to apply for the green card, you still need to prove your identity. You still need to prove you are who you say you are and your age is the age that it is because you have to, the, the cases that I work on are said you have to prove you're under 21. So if you can't prove you're under 21, you know, via a birth certificate or a passport, you can't even apply. Mm. So, you know, the fact that everything just shut down for almost a year and a half has made it impossible for certain kids to do that because if you can't prove your age, you can't even apply. So then it's even a longer period of time. Right. And by longer, yes. we're talking about a year and a half plus. These cases are taking five years. No, but I mean, in addition to the five years, oh, yeah. that's oh, crazy. Yeah, for sure, for sure. On top of that, yes. That's nuts. I mean, for me, when I worked um, in graduate school, I worked at a youth center and so they were all, you know, 16 to like 26, I want to say, maybe it was 25. And so there were a few kiddos on my caseload who were um, in their late teens, early 20s, and they had either aged out of care or like had run away from care. And so much of my work with them during our sessions was advocating to get them their paperwork, which I thought was crazy. I was like, but you were in care. Like, wouldn't they just know how to give that stuff to you? So like their birth certificates or social security card, like they didn't have any of that documentation because many of them had been in care since they were little children, like grade school kids. So they didn't have any of that documentation ever. So when you age out, it's really incumbent upon the agencies to ensure that you get that documentation when you're no longer in their care. And they were really struggling. And I got on the phone, you know, got online, emailed people, called a variety of numbers. And I was stunned how difficult it was to A, get a human on the phone and get someone to call me back after leaving, you know, thought I was going to get a human, but I got a voicemail, but it was a person, an individual. And I was like, oh, great. This is exciting. Maybe this person will call me back. 
And it would take days or weeks to get a response. And this was calling multiple times. And I thought, why isn't this a priority? Like this, this kiddo has a job that they want to get. Like they have a friend who works for, you know, DSW or something like that. And they're like, I can get you in. I can get you in. They went on an interview and managers like, love you, but need your paperwork. And so this, this kid is struggling to, and they want to work and they couldn't because they didn't have things like a birth certificate or social security card. And these often, these documents are required to even get youth services. Like there are so many, you know, even nonprofit youth service oriented organizations that won't work with youth if they don't have documentation. And so, I mean, it took at the end of the day, it took weeks, sometimes months to get these kids their documents so that they could apply for housing, apply to college if that was their track, um, apply for a variety of programs that would help them navigate the adult world because clearly no one is ready to navigate the adult world at 18. I know that that we were not, I mean, we thought we were, <laughs> we were sorely mistaken. Um, but we were lucky enough to have parents who held on to those documents for us. And I don't know what your experience was, but for me, I, I remember when I came home from college and I was, you know, moving out the final time. I'd come home for like a short time and then I, I moved to New York. And uh, my mom's like, great, you're moving to New York. You're growing up now. Like, here's this manila envelope. And inside it contained my birth certificate, my social security card, my adoption paperwork. <laughs> And I think a letter to me, like she was just, you know, you know, nostalgic about, I think we were selling our house, our family home at the time. And so it was, you know, mom stuff. And so I still have that manila envelope. Like it literally is the envelope that contains my most important documentation to date. Um, because someone gave it to me, you know, someone held it and protected it on my behalf. And until I was in a position to be responsible for it myself. And this is not um, the kind of care and um, looking after that youth aging out of care ever receive. So, I mean, it was, it was eye-opening for me to sit there week after week with these youth, trying to get them this important documentation, knowing that every day they were losing out on an opportunity to take care of themselves and that they had no other option but to take care of themselves. They had no safety net um, because they had grown up in care and there was no system in place to help them transition from being in care to being an adult in the world with all of the responsibilities and duties that entails. So um, I think our, you know, the foster care population and the immigrant population have a lot in common in that way. But also, you know, the um, migrant children in care are facing um, those same obstacles and and even additional ones. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to also note that you have a master's degree, you have Wi-Fi, you have a cell phone plan that you pay every month. And it took you weeks to get these things. Right. Well, that's why it didn't happen for them until they came to me. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they found someone who was, you know, who was devoted to helping them fulfill, you know, this this need and goal that they had. Um, and I don't know if it would have happened for them without um, without my intervention or someone else in, you know, within the same office doing that work with them. And it was just sad to me that that's what we used our time for, that instead I couldn't help them actually find a job, prepare to interview for the job, find, you know, stable, permanent housing, you know, talk to them about their traumas, which was mainly what my internship was was there to do, was, you know, to really help them talk through the stuff that they had never necessarily been given the opportunity to in a safe space. And meanwhile, we spent most of that time on Google and on the phone. So I felt like they were robbed in that way too. So it was really disheartening, you know, and we just have to keep doing what we do, right? <laughs> That's the only way. There's no way around it, just through it. I think, I think it's a really good point. I think also, you know, I can't tell you how many kids that I've had. And one of my routine questions when we're in family court is like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I can't tell you how many little kids say, I want to be a Sophia. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I want to be a lawyer. Oh, okay, okay. 
you know, because it's like the first time in their entire lives that someone's advocating for them. Well, someone saw their humanity. Right. Someone connected with them as a human. Yeah. It's life-changing for them. You know, I was like, well, you might want to think about it. It's a lot of school. Yeah. I mean, that makes a huge impression. I can imagine. I mean, I want to be a Sophia when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Who doesn't want to be that? (laughs) I mean, so do I. I'm still trying to get there. (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, it's it's the humanity. It's the connection. You know, we we are hardwired for connection. And we all want to be respected, understood, and accepted. And many of those in this population, whether you were in that population for a period of your life or for longer, it it impacts you and it makes you feel separate, makes you feel other, makes you feel like an outlier. And for reasons that have really nothing at all to do with you at all, it's just society, politics, all this stuff that doesn't feel representative of you at all, but has the greatest impact regardless. For sure. And that's the good days, right? That's the adorable moments when we're, you know, having a seven-year-old testify in court about what she wants to be when she grows up. Mm. Like the reality is she gets, if she gets to stay here, she can do whatever she wants. The sky's the limit. But if you send her home, that's not, it's not possible for her. Right. And that's why this work is so important because, you know, the reality of what their life will be like in these countries is, you know, most kids go to school till sixth grade and then they work. Hmm. Or even, I mean, I remember working on some of the, the briefs and memos a few years back with you. And I was astounded to find that like some, some kids were working in the fields as early as six years old. And so their education just wasn't a which wasn't a priority at all because of survival. I mean, I literally cannot get my thirteen or my fifteen year old to empty the dishwasher. <laughs> and these kids are like working in the fields for eight hours a day. Mm. You know, I mean, and, and the, you know, it's just, it's just the realities are so different, and they deserve a chance. And they deserve to be here, and that's a trauma. It's a trauma to not be treated like a child. In my absolutely, opinion. yep. Yep. No, and not to have that stability to if you don't work, you don't eat. That should not be the model. And even if you work, you still may not eat. Exactly. Exactly. That's the reality for them in those countries. You know, and I just, I wish that, I wish it was different. And I always, you know, go over and over my head, like, what can we change? What can we change? How can we make this easier and better for them? Yeah. Um, And I'm sure it's something you battled with too. Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, I have constant, if I'm not arguing with myself, then I'm arguing with, with somebody else, (laughs) you know, like, why do I do this? Oh, I know why I do this. Like, that's easy. Like, of course, you know, but you know, it's like almost, um, you know, like a theoretical question, you know, it's, it's like you ask it out of frustration, you know, it's like we do it because it's the right thing to do. And it's just sucks that we have to do it at all, that it's not so obvious to everyone else what is right and what isn't and why can't we get all behind the same thing and why does it have to be a battle all the time like why does it politicize everything like this is humanity these are children i don't understand sometimes why we have to fight so hard for what just seems so obvious and basic and universal i mean i think that's especially true with the family separation the zero tolerance i can't remember the name of it but there was an interesting um, documentary on Netflix about, um, I'll, I'll try and look it up and try to get the name for you, but it talked about, I mean, it basically followed around ICE officers during this policy and it just, it showed how, you know, kind of callous they were. Like they would have a warrant for one person and go into an apartment and find six other guys that were not supposed to be in the country, but they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't have a criminal mm-hmm. record. There was nothing wrong with them and they just took them all. And it was like Ugh. they scored big that day. They right. were to get like a good pat on the back from their supervisor. Well, it's like looking at people as points instead of looking at people as exactly. people. Exactly. That like if it's like if this ICE officer identified as being a dad, being a husband, being a son, it's like so did those people who you took from their home and deported. They also are a son, a father, a husband, 
or a wife, a mother, a sister, you know, like this, it's just insane that, that we can just draw those lines that separate us so distinctly when it's, it's just imaginary. Those lines don't really exist. I found it. It was, it's on Netflix. It's called Immigration Nation and it's totally worth a watch. Okay. Especially if, especially if like, you know, some of your viewers obviously are tuning in for the foster care aspect. And yes, there are, you know, it's worth noting that 26% of children in America right now, that's 18 million kids, are children of immigrants. Mm. So the the intersection of these things is, is very real. It, someone listening might not even think that they have an interest in immigration, but maybe after this podcast they can see how it does matter. It does affect the foster care system because at least 10,000 of those kids in the foster care system are immigrant children. Right. But it was a really great, it was a really well done documentary um, that it was the first of its kind where, you know, it followed ICE officers. It shows what the detention facilities look like, you know, the attitudes of the ICE officers were, it was kind of deplorable in my opinion. You know, like you said, treating them as points, you know. Right. Um, and you just separated all of these kids, American kids, from their parents, the only parents that they know. Right. And then those kids are going to have mental health issues, physical health issues. Like they might be not malnourished in foster care. Absolutely. You know, they're, not, they're not better off by deporting dad. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, so what I'll do is I'll absolutely provide the name of that documentary and my show notes so that listeners um, can find a link to it directly and find and it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the more information and there's just so much intersectionality here, right? I mean, you're an immigration attorney and I'm a social work advocate for foster care reform and we just happen to be best friends and we talk about our work all the time together in ways that we really kind of can't talk about with other people in our lives because they don't want to hear us, <laughs> you know, but, and it's, I think it's because there's so much intersectionality here and it's, it's the dehumanization, it's the othering, and it's the marginalization, and it's not okay. And and it, there's also so much more intersectionality that we could talk about. We just don't have the time to talk about it this episode, but we certainly can talk about it on another episode. But there's, you know, there's just so much intersectionality there. And as, you know, we've talked about already over the course of this episode, you know, mental health and foster care and, you know, migrant children, immigrant families, and during a pandemic, during the Trump administration, you know, how all of these things intersect and they tell a story. And I think it's a really powerful one. And I think it's a very human one. And it could have been any one of us, you know, so we're lucky enough to be on the other side, to be able to stand up and be you know, join the the voices that are not listened to and be at the helm so the people will listen to our voices because we're American and we're white and we're educated and we're professionals. So we have an incredible opportunity here to to ensure that we're keeping all humans safe, but specifically the ones that are that are really vulnerable. Because um, I, I don't know how people could see it any differently. It just seems so basic and obvious to me. And I know that you and I have had many wine nights <laughs> talking about that exact concept. And I think we that's that's our struggle. Like that's our internal, you know, psychic, emotional struggle. And that's what keeps us in the work. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully our listeners feel it too. That's that's my that's my hope. And the only thing I would add would just be that we have to take the politics out of their stuff. Yeah. Out of foster care. There's nothing life. political about being human, honestly. Right. About being a child. Right. Absolutely. Being a child that's scared. Yeah. In a new place and that doesn't understand what's going on. And that happens if you're an immigrant or not. Yeah. If you're an American born, English speaking, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed kid and you all of a sudden get put in foster care, it's the same experience as, as the immigrant child who just got their mom taken away at the border. You are just scared. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we can't let politics get involved here. I think we just have to remember compassion and, you know, humanitarian purpose and, and really 
the luck of happening to be born in America. Just having that privilege of being born in a first world country that a lot of people don't have. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, we've covered so much like dense issue here today. Um, I did have one last question though. And I know we've, I think we've sort of answered it like woven throughout our entire conversation today, but um, I do want to provide the opportunity for us to answer this last question though, which is um, a call to action. So what was your call to action? Cause I know that people have sometimes asked me if they have not heard of me before, like, why are you in, like, why are you a foster care advocate? Like what brought you to this work? And then I can easily tell them, but um, many probably don't know um, for you, what was your call to action? What led you to becoming this pioneer and advocate and force um, on the immigration front? Well, I think for me, I went to law school and I thought I want to be like a humanitarian attorney. Little did I know that doesn't actually exist. Um, <laughs> like human you know, rights, you mean? <laughs> there's like two jobs in the UN, I think, and they're highly coveted. Yeah. So, you know, or an international, you know, like just I wanted to do all of these big, big, big things. And I met someone at my law school, a professor, her name is Lenny Benson. She changed my life. And she was like, cool, cool, cool. Have you heard of asylum and refugee law? And I'm like, no, what's that? And she's like, basically, you're doing the same type of work that you want to do across borders, but you're doing it right here. The hmm. people are already here, you know, but you're still changing lives and you're still helping people um, transition from a very dangerous you know, country to America. And so I started studying immigration law and law school started specializing in it. And then I became an immigration attorney and I started practicing asylum law. And then um, in the Trump administration, I started specializing in, in Stitch because that, my, that was like my second call to action, I guess. My first call to action was just doing immigration law. And then in the Trump administration, I really focused, like, focused on Stitch because these kids, like, I can't, how, how do you let a 12-year-old get deported? Mm. How do you not do everything? It seems them? unimaginable, but sadly, it just seems like it, it happens without a bat of an eyelash. Oh, no, I mean, and you should see, too. Like, sometimes I'll be in court, um, and there'll be a six-year-old representing himself oh. in asylum proceedings. And you're like, oh, cool. Did he color his arguments for you? Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, of course he's going to lose. Of course he's not going to get asylum. Of course he doesn't know the rules of evidence. You know, and, and the thing that's really important for people to understand is unlike criminal court, um, you're not entitled, no one is entitled to an immigration attorney. In criminal court, if you can't afford, I mean, everyone's watched like SBU, right? Like Law and Order. Right. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. That only exists for U.S. citizens. That's not a thing for immigrants. Wow. You have no, the Constitution is, we the people of the United States of America. They are not the people of the United States of America. So the Sixth Amendment, does the right to counsel doesn't apply to immigrants, which is really interesting, and it, and it should apply to them, because how can a six-year-old defend himself in an asylum proceeding? How did that even happen? It seems ridiculous. I can't even believe that a judge would allow that. They have no choice. It seems just crazy. You know, and the kid crazy. is sitting there coloring with crayons. And the judge is ordering their deportation. Oh, my God. So that's when I was like, okay, we're going to develop, like, half your practice to pro bono work, and you're just going to help as many kids as possible. You're amazing. I love you so much. Well, I love you, too. <laughs> I mean, I think my well, listeners... stroke each other's ego. for hours and hours. We'll just tune off. They're like, this is annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most of my listeners already kind of know my call to action, but I'll say it quickly. It, you know, you you were with me during the struggle of graduate school and my final year when I had two brothers on my caseload who were in foster care and I broke all the rules and, you know, fell in love with them and I fiercely advocated for them. And at the end of eight months when I had to leave to graduate and and move move into the next chapter of my life. 
Um, many of their issues had not yet been resolved, and I just felt so helpless. And it took me back to my own experiences as a foster youth. And I thought I'd put all that behind me and, you know, learned that, you know, developmental trauma is not something that you leave behind. It's just something you continuously work through. And I, I guess it just had been many years before I had felt, had been many years since I felt like it really impacted me and my relationship with them. It just opened up. It just cracked me open. And when I, when I left that role, I just couldn't unsee what I had seen. And I knew I had to do something about it. And even if it's just a podcast, it's just blogging, it's tweeting, it's whatever. Um, I just have to get the word out there and I have to be a member of, of the body of people fighting to reform a system that is breaking children's souls and spirits. And I got really close to two little spirits and um, I, 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 think about them every day and it haunts me that I wasn't able to bring them peace and safety and security and a sense of, of purpose and direction for themselves. And I, I may never know how they ended up and, um, but I'm trying, trying to be a voice for them until they can vo be the voice for themselves and so that was that was my call to action. I never anticipated following this path, but um, they just broke me open. And so this is this is where my heart is. You know, it's in this work, and I really don't know how to not do it. So <laughs> I'm just doing it. I mean, I can't think of a better call to action. I, re I remember when you were going through school, uh, through graduate school, and they were trying. They kept trying to place you because of where you lived in Brooklyn in these situations where you'd be dealing with kids and you're like, I, I didn't want to necessarily do that. Yeah. And then you did. And it changed your life. And it changed the trajectory of, of your career. So it did. Yeah. Even though it wasn't necessarily something that you sought after, I think it kind of found you. Yeah. And I think the work that you do is beautiful and you know, I'll keep listening. Thank you. <laughs> you're one of the four listeners I have. So, yeah. <laughs> I really need you. Keep holding on. <laughs> oh, well, we better close up because it's been, um, I think one of the longest episodes I've ever recorded, but, um, I love you so much. And I love that we, I love that we get to work together today at least and hope that, um, maybe you'll, maybe I can convince you to be a co-host with me a time or two. I mean, we'll talk about it offline, but I feel like we're really good together. So maybe we could work on that. But in the meantime, I love your soul. I love everything about you and the work that you do. It's so important. And I'm just so proud of you and honored to, for us to be able to kind of combine our efforts and, and feel like we're, we're doing something at least we're, we're just doing it. Ditto. And also, hopefully this reaches one person and somebody decides to get involved. You yeah. know, immigration, foster care, anything. Just help the kids. Yeah. That's the right thing to do. We've all been there. I mean, I was there as a kid and I remember the people who helped me through it. And I'll never forget them. And I'm eternally grateful. And I know that you've been that person for, for kiddos in your world. So it's just, it's an extraordinary thing. It just really is. So... Yep. I hope you're right. I hope you touched at least one person today, but if not, we certainly entertained each other. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much for letting me be on the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, I really love the work that you're doing and I hope you keep doing it. Thank you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Thank you again to Sophia D for relaying her personal and professional experiences with such honesty and vulnerability. During the episode, Sophia mentioned a Netflix documentary titled Immigration Nation. So for those interested, please see the link to that in the show notes. Additionally, I encourage all of my listeners to reach out if you have a topic related to foster care or child welfare that you would like to learn more about, and I will try to schedule a guest that will speak to that specific issue.
The best way to reach me is by email at pauline at fosterfeatures.org. Also, if you have a personal story you would like to share, I would be honored to interview you on an upcoming episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out. With that, thank you all for listening. Keep being brave with your voices. Take care, everyone.